0: This is Cost Talk with Evan Cossman, and you are listening to episode 11. This week on the podcast, we have Robbie
1: Goldfuck,
0: who uh, has a couple different jobs. We'll get into all of them and more, but I wanted to start at the beginning. I guess not even the beginning, because we have another beginning before this beginning. <laughs> I wanted to get into CompSci at Western because you took a double major in medical sciences and computer sciences, sure. but we were both in the same CompSci program yes, at sure. Western. So I just want to start, what did you think about the program?
1: Yeah, so I think, I think the, the obvious, one obvious point about CompSci at Western is that it's a smaller program, right? Um, and so I think there are obviously pros and cons to that. Um, in my experience there, I'd say the con, and especially looking back now, having now been introduced to many people from, you know, Waterloo, uh, U of T, and schools in the States, I think, uh, there was a lack of real world experiences. Um, I think that, you know, constant class, uh, doesn't necessarily prepare you for what you're going to be doing in the real world. In fact, most of what I do today and since school were things that I actually learned on the side. And I think that, you know, looking at people coming from, from programs with a co-op, they have a lot more context. Mm. And so I think that's something very valuable on the flip side being in a smaller program, there's, there's opportunity within that. Um, there's opportunity to succeed. Um, there's opportunity to sort
0: of achieve things that you may or may not have have been able to do otherwise. It's funny that you bring up that, there were some droughts of real world experience because I found that a lot of the stuff they taught me definitely doesn't apply. Like I don't think I need to learn machine learning for what I yeah. was doing now and everything like that. I just think it needs to be updated. Yeah, no, for sure. So,
1: so I agree with that to some extent. I also
0: disagree in certain ways.
1: Mm. Um, so, in many ways, university, even beyond comp sci, is learning a lot of very. Um, sort of fundamental abstracted type concepts that are, are often hard to apply um, and I think there there needs to be a balance there and, and I'll tell you what I mean so in comp sci specifically um, a lot of what you learn around understanding you know complexity um and, and performance and really how operations run and are executed, um, especially at the, you know, at the operating system, at the level of the operating system. Although you might not be applying that on a day to day, it gives so much context when you are thinking about everyday problems at the workplace. And really, that's in many ways one of the things that I find differentiates people who I've worked with who come from a university background versus you know, let's say uh, an online coding school. Um, Having that deeper understanding uh, helps you, I
0: think, make better decisions when it comes to really sort of complex situations. I never thought about it as the fact that I needed the background information to get me to understand the front-end learning. But now that I think about it, it's good to have both sides. Mm -hmm. And so you can communicate properly between all things or understand everything rather.
1: Yeah, and it's a balance, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, if you don't want to spend... All day, every day, studying things that are, you know, at such a high level that you're not going to be able to use it. And I think it's also, especially in computer science, um, those high level sort of difficult concepts, um, or concepts that are harder to sort of, you know, bring close to home tend to turn people off of computer science. You know, comp sci and programming and tech in general is sort of regarded as, this by people who aren't in that world as this sort of um, very foreign, foreign space. When in reality, it's actually not right. I think I think it's there are things that we can do to to bring it closer to home and make it more relatable and more understandable. Mm-hmm. And I think to your point, you know, uh, having more of the curriculum be tied to the, to, to every day, you know, things you're actually going to be doing things you sort of get and you say, okay, I see how I can use this. I think that's, that could go a long way.
0: It's definitely taken a step in being more modern in how a lot of people are understanding the role of CompSci in today's marketplace. Yeah. But it's also definitely a couple of steps behind because like, for example, Western, when I was there, mm-hmm. they didn't offer something like iOS programming or modern language programming. Yeah compared to like when I took my semesters at Laurier, they offered that because they wanted to be more modern. They would be working closely with Waterloo and they yeah. wanted to be ahead of the curve. It obviously depends on the program that you're in. Yeah. But um, at the same time it's good that schools are making somewhat of an effort to get modern in that way. Yeah. So what drew you to CompSci? So it drew me to
1: CompSci. So I first I first formally got involved in in tech and programming in grade 11. I took a comp sci, or I don't even know if it was computer. I forget what it was called. I took a programming languages course um, and I enjoyed it a lot. And and over time throughout that year, I found it to be a creative outlet for me. So similar to the way, you know, guitar or writing music is, uh, it was very much something that excited me and was sort of an outlet to explore and do all sorts of fancy things um, and, and when I, when I actually first went to university, I didn't originally take uh computer science. I was taking a full honors in physiology and pharmacology and medical science. Um, but, uh, as I got involved in sort of some of my side businesses, I slowly started to realize, you know, maybe this is something I should do hmm. full time. Uh, and so that was the point where I sort of, I switched to a double major, um, And and that's where I started uh, to to my point earlier. That's where I started to build a lot more context around my programming and my programming decisions. Mm. Um, And I think uh, as much as I don't know how often I actually applied the things I, I learned in computer science, I think they did make me a better programmer.
0: Yeah, well, hopefully going through a program like that, you would learn a couple things that yeah, help in things. <laughs> yeah, at light. least one or two. So yeah, so let's talk about <laughs> those side businesses that you're doing before and even in school. Yeah. Um, one of the main ones was Bravada. So can you talk about what that was?
1: Yeah, for sure. So Bravada is a customer feedback tool. Bravada has changed a lot over the now four or five years that I've been I've been working on it on the side um, and I mean we're still collecting um, customer feedback for businesses but our focus has has definitely shifted to be from being more of a survey tool to a strategic tool um, that helps businesses make more high-level decisions and you know actually use their customers to understand their, their business objectives and how they're performing as opposed to trying to answer a quick question.
0: How, when you're making that focus shift, mm-hmm. how do you know when it's the right time and to not abandon the first part, but to <coughs> maybe pivot to something else?
1: Well, so in my experience with Bravada, I had I had a couple types of pivots. There were pivots that were, were bad pivots and pivots that were, that were good pivots. Mm-hmm. And I think... The the difference for me when there are periods of time where you're not doing a lot, where things are relatively stagnant, which it, which will come up if you're working on something on the side, mm-hmm. which I was. It, it pivoting is a very appealing option because it's an easy way to sort of shift things up and, and change things. And that's that's not the right reason to make a pivot. Um, I think another wrong reason is is not listening to the market and listening to your customers. I found. Um, especially with my experience with Bravada as well as in other experiences that it's very easy to tell yourself you're listening to your customers, but it's a lot, it's a lot harder to actually listen to your customers. Um, it's very easy to talk to one person or two person and hear what you want to hear or maybe kind of hear what you want to hear and shift it. Um, but it's a lot harder to really do the research. And I think when you really do the research and you really know that, you know, I, I figured something out that makes sense, you know, um, I think if you don't have to keep reminding yourself that, oh, this is a good idea or, oh, I did my research, then then it's probably the right, the
0: right move. No, you definitely don't want to stay complacent with what you're doing just because yeah. it's doing OK. You want to get to something better. Mm-hmm. So what did you learn from those bad pivots that you mentioned that helped you with Knowing that the good pivots were the right pivots.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I learned a lot of very specific things Mm. here and there. I learned that, you know, I learned a lot about how to, how to build a UI that makes people excited. I learned a lot um, about what types of information actually matter to people. Um, but I think more than anything, you know, I learned that you have to, you have to really understand um, your surroundings and you really have to understand the people that you want to use your product. Um, cause like I said, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's so easy to, 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 you know, pull something out of your butt and just try and do it, but it's a lot harder to, to really figure out the right thing. It's a lot more frustrating, but, I, but I learned that
0: it's, it's
1: worth it. And I think important to take the
0: time to do that. So how did you define the ideal client?
1: In many ways, what we did, um, was, was a- almost more the reverse. And whether or not this is the right decision, um, I can't really speak to. But I think what, what we did was we, we focused a lot on the market and we focused a lot on where the gaps were. We focused a lot on what we were doing wrong mm. and why people who didn't like our product didn't like our product. And we designed a product around that. And then tried to understand, you know, who could this product be useful for? Um, now the nice thing about that was, um, we've been able to continue to iterate and, and move towards a product that is exciting Mm -hmm. and unique and people sort of raise their eyebrows at it, which is, which is so important when you're, you know, especially when you're young and doing something on the side. But the flip side is it took us a lot more time to figure out who our, who our target was. And, and then when we did figure out, you know, as we have begun to to more clearly define who our target is, there's shifting that's required. So uh, in many ways, I think that it was a good decision because we were able to identify something that was unique and something that was very powerful. Um, but it probably wasn't the most agile approach mm. to to developing a business.
0: Let's take a quick break from the interview with Robbie to just update you on the current state of the podcast. Those of you listening to this on Facebook will notice we changed podcast hosts. It was time I decided I actually invest in this podcast if I was going to commit. So we officially swapped hosts. This episode with Robbie was put on both the old and new host as I set up the final transfer for future episodes. For those of you wondering if this affects your subscription, do not worry everything happens on the back end. If you're subscribed on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or directly from the feed, you won't even notice in the next episode. The next thing I want to talk to you about is the Facebook and Twitter pages. I feel like I've been misusing these since I started the podcast. These are supposed to be outlets where I connect with you, the listeners, beyond just posting the weekly content. So if you would be so kind to give us a like on the Talk Facebook page, and a follow on the Cost Talk Twitter. You'll find an open discussion about a bunch of topics, including sports, business, life goals, and everything else I can think of. I put up a couple of polls this week, and I was really excited to see the engagement. We are also going to be giving facelifts to the respective pages, so be on the lookout for that. Finally, the point I try to hammer home each episode. The path to making this podcast successful is a marathon, not a sprint. I realize that it will take a lot of time. I've been thrilled with the number of streams and downloads of the episodes so far, and I'm not disparaging any part of that, but I know there is a capacity for so much more. It feeds into the reason why I switched audio hosts, because I know it is for the betterment of the podcast. I'm appreciative of everything that has happened so far, and especially to those of you who have taken the time to actually leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. I cannot stress enough how important it is for you to do this as it really helps with the visibility and lifeblood of the podcast for future episodes. I'm going to start a segment in future episodes where I give a shout out to those of you who take the time to write a review. Maybe you even read a couple. I dislike asking as much as the next podcaster, but if you could take a minute and leave a five star review, it goes a long way more than you can even imagine. Now back to the interview with Robbie. So how did you get the idea for Bravada? So I got the idea. So back, so I mentioned I, I took my first
1: programming course in grade 11. And so I started a few small businesses on the side, uh, throughout grade 12 and first year university. Um, I started one called panel.com, which was this almost comical attempt to redefine the dictionary and sort of crowdsource the, the English dictionary. Almost like a combination of Wikipedia and and there's Urban Dictionary. I was gonna and, say
0: that's what it reminds me of. Yeah.
1: <clears throat> yeah, it's so a few different things. Um, it actually, what it actually ended up being, was almost the exact same as what Reddit is now. Mm. Became like almost these discussions around different concepts or words. Oh. Um And this was way before I mean, it was before I knew what Reddit was, but uh, I'm sure it existed. But yeah, so we so so I started a few things and and as I kept sort of moving from one thing to the next, um, and I started getting more familiar with programming and specifically web programming, which that experience, that's what that gave to me. It was really, you know, it opened my eyes to, to the possibilities of the web. Um, I got very excited about that. And so um, I was specifically really excited about the flexibility of the web, specifically the fact that, you know, you can within minutes get something up on the internet And share it with someone halfway around the world. Um, and so I thought that was really cool. And so I almost worked backwards and I said, you know, how can, how can I use this? And sort of the first thing that came to mind was, I want to be able to get feedback on these things that I'm working on. Mm. Um, why don't I make something that can do that? Because the web, you know, is, is the best way to do that. Like I, I was, I found myself always like, you know, jumping through hoops to try and get people to come over or get on the phone or take a look at this. And then you had to screen share or, you know, go over to their place and show them. And so, so the thought was, you know, this is, this is what the web solves. And so I just built this website where, you know, anyone could sign up and you could create a page. Mm. Uh, and then you could share that page, which is, you know, fundamentally what the internet is. And so I just built something around that uh, and, and went from there.
0: Oh, awesome. So you basically built it as a way to get feedback <laughs> on your ideas. And then it sort of built into feedback on other people's ideas at the same time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was
1: something that I really wanted um, and nothing out there was really doing it for me, um, mostly because everything was very tedious. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what Bravado was initially built around was this concept of one tap feedback and being super quick. And and it was in that way, you know, we were able to get very high response rates, much higher than we would have through, you know, other, other survey um, tools. And so for me, it was great. Um, mm. the, the first time I think I I really used Bravada was to get feedback on Bravada. I got a, a ton of information very, very quickly. So,
0: You didn't like the options that were given to you, so the best way to do it is just to build something yourself, basically. Yeah, no, for sure. That's funny that you use Bravada to get the feedback from Bravada. So when did you realize that you were actually onto something, just when you started getting responses on Bravada?
1: Yeah, I mean, the to me it never really was a real thing until uh we got our first business using it. I mean, it it was cool to see people responding, but to be fair, a lot of these people were people I knew either directly or indirectly. Um but uh you know what I what I did is I got a few guys who uh who were sort of willing to do to work as a, a commission sales position, um, and they went out. We were in in London, and they, I think, the first day they went out, they each made like a couple sales, and I was like,
0: "Wow, this mm. is this is cool." So they got you your first sales, or you were able to get your first one, and then you started bringing people in. Sorry.
1: No, so I so I had gotten a, a number of businesses using it for free. Oh. Um, and then at that point, you know, I was, I was managing, working with these clients. I was actually building the software. Mm. Um, and then I was trying to, you know, actually try and pull a, pull a business plan together and everything. And so what I did is I said, you know, like, why am I, you know, wasting my time? Why don't I just ask some people if they want to go try and sell this? If they do, I'll give them, you know, whatever percent. Um, and, and I more just figured, you know, why, why the hell not just try it,
0: mm-hmm. um, so, and also, why give something away for free if people are actually willing to pay for it?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think I think that there are two sides to that. I think what I found with people who were using it for free is ultimately it was, it's easier to get them to use it. Right? Mm. It's, it's, it's obviously easier to give something to someone than to make them pay for it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but on the flip side, we found we got much more. And, and I found this still today in other businesses as well. You get much better feedback from people who are willing to pay for it because mm-hmm. they have skin in the game and they care. When you give something to someone for free, they don't feel that sort of onus to, to make this work. And so they're much more reluctant to work with you.
0: No, for sure. They, they might test it out and then never use it again. But if someone's paying for it, they're, they're committed. They're actually, yeah, into they got to get their money's worth. Mm. And so
1: they're going to work with you to make sure that, that they do that.
0: So I want to go back to the thing you talked about before. How hard was it to convince that first company to join in? Or was it because it was free? They're like, oh, we'll try this out and we'll see how it goes.
1: Yeah. I mean, well, we were, so we were in London. It was a lot of these small retail um, and restaurant chains that were, you know, in the student core. Um, so honestly, that, that part wasn't too bad. Mm. Um, things got trickier when we moved back to Toronto and we tried to, you know, work with bigger businesses that that's where things got more difficult, but in a friendly small town, um, people, at least for free, were willing to do us a favor. Um, and, and even, you know, when some of these restaurants heard there's, you know, a local student startup trying to get something going, they were happy to, to put some money in.
0: That's really cool. Actually, that the small town approach actually helped the business in the long run.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to say, right? Because, mm-hmm. um, there, it's, it's a small town. Mm-hmm. Um, none of these businesses were chains. Um, the owners were not necessarily as well connected as some of the owners are in Toronto. Um, mm-hmm. so there was sort of a, a, limit to what we could do there mm-hmm. and a limit to how far our efforts there could go. But it certainly was an easy, an easy launch pad.
0: So what were the hardest parts about juggling this venture, the other ventures you were, had your foot in, and school at the same time? I mean, the hardest part is prioritization, right? And,
1: and I think, you know, the, the solution I found to that was organization. Um, and I would and, and still do spend up to 30 minutes a day just organizing my own personal backlog what are my priorities? Like, not just at work, not just at home in in life. What are the things? And I will reorder them and I'll think about them and I'll, you know, put together a plan to address them. If I didn't have that, um, you know, there's no way I'd be able to do that. Cause it, it, it's tricky. Um, cause it's tricky to sort of look at so many different things, especially, you know, when I was doing business and school and, uh, that are so different. Um, and so it's actually, uh, it, it, it's a lot of work and it should be a lot of work to really consider your approach. Um, and so, yeah, so I think, I think the hardest part was, was just nailing down those priorities and how I wanted to work on things. But, uh, but, but I put time into that and I mm-hmm. think that that was worth it.
0: No, for sure. Cause it leads to you where you are now. And speaking of now you're working at top hat in what capacity? So I am currently working at top hat as a product manager. And what does that entail?
1: So what is a product manager? So that's a it's a great question. And a lot of people ask me that all the time. It is not a project manager. It's mm-hmm. a different thing. A product manager, um, if I had to sum it up in one line, is you are like the CEO of a small part of the company mm-hmm. or one product of the company. Um, what it actually means is is a number of different things. And I think it, it varies a lot depending on the organization you're in, but you are essentially the interface between the rest of the company and the rest of the world and the actual product. So you're the interface between the engineers building it um, and and the people saying what to build. And so a lot of what product management is, uh, is prioritization as mm. well, like we were just talking about. Um, so it's being able to synthesize um you know, market data, what are the competitors doing, uh, information from your customers, from all your internal stakeholders, what does sales want, what does client services want, um, and being able to um, figure out, you know, what is what is going to move the needle. Um, I think that, you know, a good product manager is exactly that, is someone who is going to move the needle. You can waste a lot of time If you don't have a product manager or you don't have a good product manager, you can work on the wrong thing. There's nothing more expensive than doing the wrong thing Mm -hmm. because you're wasting time and you're wasting money. Um, So that's the job of product management. So how
0: did you get started at Top Hat?
1: So I interviewed with Top Hat about halfway through my fourth year of university. um, And they offered me a job. Um, I had met with uh, Mike, the CEO, and a couple um, of the other... Uh, upper level managers there and they struck me as a very hungry company with a lot of opportunity and that's that's very much what they've proven to be throughout my time there
0: what did you see in that hunger
1: yeah i mean so top hat i think they in my conversations and in my early sort of first little bit there it became very obvious that they were very willing to adapt and do what it takes to make things happen. And whether that meant slightly shifting up the plan or the approach or just putting in the extra hours, uh, the whole team and everyone in the organization was was willing to sort of do what it takes to, to continue to push
0: to that next level. So what is it that Top Hat actually does?
1: So, Top Hat was traditionally a classroom engagement tool. So, the idea is it's a software replacement for for in-class clickers like the iClicker. Since I've started there, um, it started to shift into more of a complete learning and teaching platform. Um, specifically, what the project I picked up was was what we're calling the content project. Um, An idea behind the content project is. Um, we built this really cool platform in Top Hat. Now people are creating so much stuff inside it. So questions and textbooks and things like that. Um, let's actually start building a marketplace and a community around the content inside Top Hat. And there's obviously so much more money in in content than there is in just selling a, a clicker platform. And I think for comparison, the the first year organic chemistry textbook market alone is bigger than the entire classroom engagement market um, so so when I started there in that project um, we started by building building out the textbook editor and a textbook tool and just and then eventually actually building a marketplace um, just so that there was the infrastructure to support a content a content marketplace
0: um, so what happens within the content marketplace how do the students and teachers I guess interact within that
1: So the idea is, uh, so primarily, uh, what, what we're selling in the content marketplace are, are textbooks. And that's, that's Mm -hmm. very much what Top Hat is is intending to do is, is to disrupt the textbook market and to essentially replace the publishers. So uh, similar to what companies like Airbnb and Uber have done in their industries by cutting out the sort of evil middleman, uh, we're doing essentially the same thing with textbooks. And so the way it works is professors can sign up for Top Hat um, and they can build their own textbooks. They can then make those available for other professors to adopt um, and then deliver to their students or... for other professors to join them and collaborate. So it's Mm. sort of this marketplace where professors are creating the content, they're collaborating on the content, and then they're ultimately selling it to to either their own or other students.
0: Mm. And through that collaboration, they can even make the product better, basically. That's
1: exactly the idea, right? So um, with a traditional print textbook, um, you're going to Deliver a new uh, edition every, you know, year, or couple of years, and even in that case, you're only going to have the editing team that works on it, you know, in those increments. In the case of the Top Hat Marketplace, um, you have huge communities of professors all looking to improve this same textbook and being able to do that in real time. So when you know, if there are 300 professors on a chemistry textbook and one professor says, Hey, I think this can be explained better, or Hey, maybe there's a mistake here, they can fix that and all the professors get the all the professors and their students get the improvements immediately.
0: Mm-hmm. As opposed to waiting till the next semester when they get the new textbook and everything. It, As opposed to waiting yeah.
1: to the next semester, maybe even two years or four mm-hmm. years, it would depend. But yeah, it's, it's certainly a lot
0: quicker. Pluto won't be a planet in most of those textbooks. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> the idea. So you made the jump from a full-stack developer what made you say you wanted to get away from that and join and become a product manager
1: so i think like i was was telling you earlier there's traditionally this separation um, between engineering organizations and and product organizations or the rest of the business in that engineers are very much focused on you know, scalability and future-proofing the product and making the right decisions, um, whereas the business tends to to lean towards getting to market, getting something out the door, being able to test something and iterating. And, and, and I did find that to some extent, um, you know, at, at a few of the places, uh, a few of the projects I've been involved in and, until now, and I think, to me, that was actually an opportunity. And I think that the right way to do it is to really be in the middle of those two things. I don't think the product or engineering should lean one way or the other. I think that, um, what a product manager should do or has the opportunity to do is to really mend those things and to really understand what are the scalability issues. You know, when is it worth taking out tech debt and when is it not? Um, and to align that with the objectives of the business and where you want to go and what the timelines are. And so that, that excited me, um, and I think, uh, you know, in many ways, that's what you have to do as a CEO. Um, and so I had some of that experience working on my own projects before, before Top Hat. And so mm. um, it, seemed, it seemed like it makes sense.
0: Mm. Uh, can you talk about any of the things that you think specifically you learned in past experiences helped you in your experience with Top Hat?
1: Things I learned in past experiences helped with my experience with Top
0: Hat. Yeah. I mean, well, so
1: one thing for sure is like I was alluding to earlier, um, listening to your customers, you know, um, it is so easy to pretend to listen to your customers, but it's so much harder to actually do it and to actually really get knee deep, understand, you know, what's, what's going on. And I think, You know that's incredibly was incredibly important for Top Hat because I was thrown into a product that you know was not being used by four or five people but was being used by hundreds of thousands of people, Um, and so what one or two people have to say could easily be useless. And so, and and I got that you know from from Bravada um, and from some other experiences. I think another thing was uh, the. Understanding the importance of communication. Um, communication, I think, is probably the most important thing, um, uh, likely in any position, especially in, in product management, as well as you know being an entrepreneur. I realized very quickly when I was working on my own projects that you could have brilliant ideas in your head and this beautiful vision, but if you can't spit it out in a way that people can understand and relate to, it's worthless. So you are really only as good as what you can get out of your head. Um, and I think that was a lot of what I worked on before coming to Top Hat. Um, and then actually, you know, working as a product manager at Top Hat, that's so much of, of what you need to do because it's not just having the ideas, it's it's communicating it and it's especially hard in a in a bigger organization because you're not just communicating it to you know one potential investor. Or one partner, or a small team. You're communicating it across multiple departments um, to different stakeholders and customers, um, and so it, it was. It was. It's been so important um, in my everyday work there, and I think that that's something that you know I wouldn't have known had I gone straight from university without any side experience.
0: No, that's definitely the hardest part where you. Even though you convince yourself every idea you have is great, you need to convince the other people that Mm. it is. And as you mentioned before, that's the hardest part. That's what this podcast is. I made it for myself. and (laughs) It's just hard convincing other people that it's as great as I think it is. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so to end every episode, uh, I have my guests ask the next guest a question. Sure. Um, So your question comes from Mike Belkin, uh, last week's guest, a Tennis Canadian Hall of Famer. His question to you was, what is your motivation in your work? What drives you? Is it love of what you do, or is it for the money?
1: Yeah, I mean, I do my job. I do everything I do um, for myself, and what and I think what I mean by that is that you know, myself and everyone is is so are so incredibly unique. Yeah. You know, everyone has their own strengths and has their own weaknesses, and. What that the way I interpret that is everyone has something unique to offer, and so for me, what sort of drives me is is everyday better understanding what my strengths are and what my weaknesses are, and getting closer to understanding what can my unique contribution be, um, and and that's what drives me wanting to make my own unique contribution
0: mm. to the world and also to the, business. To, the to society
1: yeah. to the world to the business um, yeah.
0: And do you have a question for our next guest?
1: I do have a question for the, for the next guest. This is, this is a question I've, I've asked some people this before, and I always get very interesting answers. I always learn a lot from this question, which is the reason I mm. chose to ask it. So if you could, in one discreet, so not obvious, but one discreet way, make sure a business you're running is going to fail, what would that be?
0: Ooh. now now let me follow this up is it in case it's going poorly or if it's going well but you're not happy with it why do you why do you create that
1: no I think it's it's more about it's more about uh like obviously the reason I say discreet is because like obviously how can you make a business fail you can just do nothing you can throw all your money in the toilet what I'm more what I find more interesting is what are decisions that may even seem like normal decisions, mm. um, or, or actions that you can do that might not be totally notable, but are, are surefire ways to make sure things don't work out. Everyone sure. always talks about, you know, what are the, what are the secrets yeah. to making it work out? And I think it's, it's interesting to think about what are the secrets to make it not work out? Cause there's a lot you can learn from that.
0: No, great question. I'm excited to hear the answer. Yes, All right, sorry. Robbie. Thank you for being on the podcast.